you want a career in clinical medicine, but you also want to do cutting edge research and maybe teach. You're thinking about an MD PhD program, but what does it take to get in? Let's find out. Our guest today is former chairperson of the University of Arizona's College of Medicine Admissions Committee. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Acceptance founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 453rd episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Do you want to get accepted to medical school this cycle? We have a webinar that's just perfect for you. You're invited to start medical school in 2023, how to get accepted this year, which is coming to a Zoom screen near you on Tuesday, January 18th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. You can reserve your seat at accepted.com slash start med school. No spaces, no dashes, just accepted.com slash start med school. Our guest today is Dr. Herman, AKA Flash Gordon, accepted consultant and former chair of the University of Arizona Tucson College of Medicine's Admissions Committee. Dr. Gordon also served on PhD admissions committees while at the University of Arizona, and since joining Accepted, has guided clients to acceptance at MD-PhD programs, sometimes to several acceptances at those programs. Dr. Gordon has been on Admissions Straight Talk several times in the past, and it's my distinct pleasure to have him on again today. Flash, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you again for joining me. Now, let's let's go back. We're going to focus the show on MD-PhD admissions, as you know. How and when did you get involved, first of all, in med school admissions, and then specifically the MD-PhD world? Let's see. I think I started on the University of Arizona Admissions Committee about a decade ago. And uh, it was one of these things that's like, oh, it's your turn to take on a big uh, service job. And I knew nothing about what I was getting into. Uh, although I, I, you know, I was teaching med students, it was interesting. I very quickly learned that it was actually a great committee and that for everyone who was on it, they felt like it was the best service they had ever done. Wow. And it's because, you know, it's, it's a, a major responsibility. You know, you're determining people's futures. Uh, you're uh, shaping the class that you're going to teach. You know, it's, it's just a great opportunity and, and you're doing positive things. You know, it's not like, you know, a disciplinary committee or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, being a, a, an obstetrician when you get to deliver babies, you don't right. just deal with sickness. <laughs> okay. Right, right. Um, how long were you the chair of the committee and roughly and then, how many applications did you evaluate in that period? Well, so let's see, I was committee for four years uh, and I was chair for the last two years. And we, let's see, at the committee level, you know, about 600 applications make it through the interview and then go on to the full committee. So that's 600 a year of which, you know, as chair, you have to look at all of those. Uh, but when you're on a subcommittee, uh, or at least we ran it with subcommittees, then uh, you get about a fifth of those. So, you know, 120 or so. Uh, and... It's a lot of work. It's, you know, for a typical missions committee uh, member, it's about 200 hours, well, which is a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is, and, especially on top of a teaching load. Right. And then uh, as chair, 
it's probably closer to 600. Right, right. So yeah, you've it's, obviously it's really, it's really huge. Hundreds um, of, of applications. Right. Um, and although I had done PhD admissions in neuroscience, I was new to how the MD PhD admissions worked. And different schools do it differently. Uh, at uh, University of Arizona, there was a separate MD-PhD committee, and both that committee and the regular MD committee had to accept the applicant. Yeah. So it was a sort of parallel process. In some schools, the MD-PhD committee has more autonomy. It's like, okay, you get this many slots and you get to fill them however you want. Got it. But uh, there is a very large component of, you know, both sides have to accept you. They have right. to accept your you as a clinician and they have to accept you as a researcher. So. Okay. Are there different kinds of MD-PhD programs? And if so, what are some of the major categories? I think the, the biggest distinction is whether it has an MSTP or not. And the MSTP is an NIH-funded program that basically pays uh, for so many students uh, to be in an MD-PhD program each year. So that's a full ride? Yeah, so that's what gets you the full ride, right? And at least while you're uh, in the uh, doing your research component, uh, you're getting a stipend as well as having your uh, tuition paid. Wow. Um, so, you know, you're acting as a graduate student uh, during that time. So now uh, there are are other programs which don't have an MSTP. Uh, they all aspire to having an MSTP because it's a load of money and it uh, allows you to attract the best students. Uh, but still, uh, there are a lot of programs which are, are excellent, uh, which uh, maybe they're newer uh, or smaller. And so they haven't gotten to the point where they can uh, get one of these coveted MSTP grants. But they'll try to fund their students or at least some of their students in a similar way. So as you come in as an MD-PhD student, it is sort of, you know, the free ride. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would call that much work a free ride. But, it is a lot um, of work. But it's, uh, it is but it's better good. than paying tuition and doing a lot of work. Yes, yes. So, you know, it, I think a lot of my MD-PhD clients, you know, they're only applying to MSTP programs. Sure. Um, but there are opportunities outside of that. Uh, which can be very good MD PhD opportunities, nonetheless. So, that would would those non uh, MSTP programs typically also provide at least some funding in order to compete? Typically, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. That's that's the only way they can compete. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who, in your opinion, should consider the MD PhD, whether it's MSTP or non MSTP? Uh, people who are very motivated <laughs> <laughs> to do what. Uh, to do <laughs> to do a lot of work. Um, okay. <laughs> so you know it's a long haul. Typically, how long? Uh, well, typically eight years. You know because it's the full four years of med school, and uh, you know, and, and four years for a PhD is uh, quick. But you know, to a certain extent, you can use some of your uh, rotation times in med school and somewhere between first and second years to be getting going on your research. So. Uh, there, there's a little bit of uh, overlap, but uh, not a whole lot. So back to who should consider it. I find that even the successful MD, PhD clients tend towards one side or the other, you know, towards the clinical side, but they want to do research to support their clinical work, 
or uh, probably more frequent, they're, they're more on the research side, um, but they want the, you know, the total involvement of being able to uh, apply their research to the patients that they're working with. So oftentimes, uh, like a rare disease uh, right. might have, uh, you know, a, an MD, PhD specializing in it. So they're treating the patients and in working with the patients, they're also figuring out, you know, what are the, the concerns? You know, maybe there are symptoms that people aren't really that aware of, but, you know, as you work with these patients, you start to realize it. And then that becomes a research topic. Sure. And, and then you also see, you know, the results of your research being applied to the patients and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, with positive results. Uh, but then you get feedback from the patients, you know, so that kind of uh, deep interaction can be very successful uh, on both sides, both on the research side and on the clinical side. So it's and, kind of a combination of theoretical and, and clinical. Right. Practical. And application. Right. Yeah. 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 I usually think of medicine as an applied science. And uh, so an MD PhD is doing both sides. They're figuring out, you know, the, the underpinnings that can then be applied. So. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Once a student decides that he or she wants to pursue the MD PhD program, what should they consider as they go about the task of selecting where to apply? How should they research the programs? What factors in your opinion should be determinative? So uh, at least influential. How about right. That? So people who are applying for the MD PhD have to have a lot of research experience. And that will include probably at least two publications. So that's, that's pretty. Do they have to be first author or they just have to be an author? Uh, first three would be good. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's probably, they, they probably have about 2000 hours of uh, research experience before they're applying for the MD PhD. It almost um, is a, it's a full-time role for a year, really. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they probably have spent three summers in labs and uh, they've been getting uh, credit for continuing to work in the lab throughout the year. Uh, they may be spending at least 15 hours a week every week in school and then, you know, 60 hours a week in the summer. Uh, and it adds up, you know, and before yeah. you know it, those are your 2,000 hours. Uh, so... It's people who you know have demonstrated a very serious commitment uh, to research, um, and if you and, and everybody who's getting selected has that kind of background, so it's not like you can say, "Oh, you know, I'd like to do research in addition to my MD." Um, if that's the case, you don't want to go down the MD PhD path. There will be plenty of opportunities to do research as an MD, and uh, you know there's there are special programs almost all med schools have where they pay you for the summer between first and second years to do eight weeks of research, and that can uh, lead to you know sort of ongoing opportunities throughout the uh, the rest of your medical education, and some of those people end up being very significant clinician scientists even without the PhD. So I have a brother-in-law who was a, got a, got an MD mm -hmm. and worked as a physician for many, many years, but did research throughout the time. Mm -hmm. 
and was yeah. published many times, presented right. the whole thing, but right. never, never got the PhD. Never, I don't think even ever considered it. Right, and I think that that, that works uh, uh, very well for a lot of people, and the uh, the NIH supports clinician scientists whether they only have an MD or they have an MD PhD. Okay. But going back to my question in, in terms of, let's say somebody has determined they want the, the MD PhD and they, they're now like, how do I choose where to apply? Uh, oftentimes people get really into their undergraduate research and that helps to shape what they want to get into as a research field. And so they'll know, you know, the kind of labs that are doing the work that they'd like to get into. So that um, would be one of the factors. <laughs> right. So uh, that's actually uh, a great uh, opportunity that uh, you should leverage in your application, you know, to contact the lab, you know, uh, and maybe you've already been in communication with the lab. Maybe the lab you've been working in, you know, has a collaboration with this other lab. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'd love to go to this lab at UCSF and, and work on this other aspect of the research. You know, maybe it's uh, moving, you know, from uh, cell culture to an animal model, but, you know, related diseases. You know, th there can be very good reasons for kind of uh, wanting to develop your research career at a particular location. So that's sort of... The the best case scenario, right? Mm -hmm. now, oftentimes, you know, you just apply to places because the stats and the reputation are appropriate to what you're looking for. And, and that can work out too. Um, but I find that the, the closer your connection, the better your chances are of, of getting that uh, uh, interview from that school. So. All right. Great, great point. Thank you. Now, MD-PhD applicants have to write, in addition to the typical MCAS application or typical secondaries, they have to write an MD-PhD essay and a significant research experience essay. Can you tell us kind of what's the difference between those two documents and okay. the MCAS personal statement or the typical secondaries? How long are they? When should mm -hmm. they be submitted? And what is the purpose of each one? There's a whole bunch of questions there, so oh, okay. I, can, I can go back over them. So why okay. don't we just start with what so, are those so two documents? So when you're, uh, you know, you sign up for AMCAS, usually it opens a month before the, uh, the first possible submission date. And uh, you click a button that says, you know, MD-PhD. <laughs> then uh, two things become available to you, the MD-PhD essay and the significant research essay. Um, otherwise, the AMCAS is the same. So let's see. So what's different? The, uh, and, and do those two essays have to be submitted at the same time as the AMCAS? Yes, yes, it's part of your application. So those essays have to be there loaded in AMCAS uh, when you click the submit button. So the, the regular personal statements, 5,300 characters, you can talk about uh, your desire to do research in that personal statement. You don't have to, but you do have to put it in the MD-PhD essay. So the MD-PhD essay is 3,000 characters, so it's relatively short say about three paragraphs. And uh, it is absolutely crucial and it's probably the hardest one for MD-PhD applicants to write. And the, uh, the goal of this essay is to express why you need both degrees. 
I would say my clients work three weeks on it. You know, it's not three weeks solid, but right. you have to go through many versions and, you know, kind of rethinking it. And they'll start out, you know, sort of knowing at some level that they want to be a clinician scientist, but they haven't really kind of uh, got it to the point where they can communicate that to somebody else. You know, obviously there's the whole bench to bedside part of this, right? Where you want to be able to take the work that you've been doing and, you know, deliver it to the patient, you know, um, and it does happen, you know, but not necessarily, you know, there are physician scientists too, who, you know, they're working on stuff in the lab that's still very far removed from what's going to happen with their present day patients. Or but, it doesn't work. Right. Right. <laughs> in which case you're screwed. Uh, because the American system does not reward <laughs> failure, okay. uh, even though it should be an essential part of science. So there's a lot of discussion about this, right? Of, uh, how the NIH should be maintaining uh, failure. <laughs> um, okay, so somehow you need to be able to express that. And, and, and you have to give like specific reasons or goals or... Right. So as always with the AMCAS, stories, you know, vignettes really help because you can say, you know, it's like a picture is worth a thousand words. A little vignette is worth a lot of essay. Um, and so I, I have a, a successful MD, PhD client this year who, you know, was simultaneously working in the ED where there were lots of COVID uh, patients. and working in the lab on how, uh, you know, COVID might be affecting the brain, you know, and trying to work out the mechanism of that. And, you know, so that's, that's incredible. You know, it's like you're on both sides yeah. uh, of, of the fight at the same time. And so she was able to include that uh, as part of her essay and, you know, part of her uh, motivation to keep doing uh, this kind of work. So. Right. Right. All right. And okay. So the then that, uh, yeah, significant research is uh, very similar to uh, what you would write for a PhD committee. So it's 10,000 characters. Uh, it should be uh, like a, a one paragraph summary right at the beginning, uh, sort of, you know, your path, you know, what your interests are, where that came from, and, you know, sort of uh, how that's developed. Then you go through and have sections for each of the labs or each of the research projects that you've worked on. And ideally, you know, so uh, I find uh, because this is such a long essay, it works to have little titles, you know, so the title is the, the lab, the dates you were there, the PI, uh, right, and the research topic. Then you talk about what you did, not getting too into the technical details, but getting into the question, you know, Oh, why was this important? Uh, how did your research fit into the larger scheme of things? And then uh, at the end, some sort of conclusion, you know, we were able to determine this or, you know, it didn't work because, and if I were to, uh, to do this, uh, if, if I were to have continued on this project, I would have uh, tried pursuing this other approach, you know, something like that. And then ideally you've got like a publication at the, and it could be just a poster. That's fine. You know, but it's, it's a reviewed journal article. That's great. And so that's the end of the section. Then the next section, title, 
you know, the uh, time period, this is what I did, this is why it was important, you know, and so you go through and you squeeze all of that into 10,000 characters. And for somebody who's done their 2000 hours of uh, research time, the challenge is squeezing it in. It's, right. it's not f- filling right. out for 10,000. So. And is there any attempt to include like a proposed research or, or no. no, it's just uh, strictly what you've done in the past or to date. Right. Right. You can, you know, you could have a final paragraph of, you know, uh, this, this pathway has led me to, uh, a desire to be involved in this new kind of research. Got it. Got you know, it. So if, it. If I were, if I were to summarize the MD PhD essay would be more like a, why I want to do this kind of what's motivating me to pursue this, this, this particular path mm-hmm. and uh, the significant research experience essay would be exactly what it t- the title implies, mostly focused on significant research that you've done in the, in the past with the details that, that you mentioned mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. question. Okay that you're trying to solve to answer with the research right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay and obviously right. the the personal statement the re- regular personal statement in mcas and and the experiences most meaningful experiences activity descriptions they would they would probably present the clinical side of you if you will um it, it should still be uh a mix right okay. so you know so you've got three most significant uh essays and it's probably be your most significant clinical, your most significant uh, research, and your most significant community service. You know, great. So it's, it's nice. Just like a regular, it. just like a regular MD application, right? Right. Okay. Uh, great. And it kind of leads to my next question, which is: What are some of the critical differences between the regular MD application and the MD PhD admission in terms of how the application is evaluated. We've been Mm. talking about different elements and kind of how they fit together. And I think you gave some excellent advice, but how are they evaluated differently? Okay. So uh, some schools uh, at the AMCAS level, well, yeah, it's at the AMCAS level, allow you to choose whether you want to be considered for both the MD and the MD PhD programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, typically, the MD-PhD program is the more competitive one, and the idea is, well, if you don't make it into the MD-PhD, would you still consider being accepted into the MD program? And, uh, you know, again, you there still have uh, research opportunities as an MD, and occasionally people, uh, it, it's just so obvious that they're going to be good uh, researchers especially after their first summer of research. And so sometimes they'll get picked up for the MD-PhD program. So that happens. Uh, It's not frequent, but I I have seen it happen. So there are reasons, even if you want to be a very serious clinical researcher, for you to accept an MD program. Okay, so that's that's the first step is, are you being considered by both programs? I would say most schools, uh, there's a, so there's always a separate MD-PhD committee. It's not the, uh, the regular MD committee that determines the MD-PhDs. Uh, so there's a separate committee. Uh, there are typically both MDs, uh, well, all three, MDs, PhDs, and MD-PhDs on that uh, admissions committee. So that committee will evaluate uh, more the research side. So it's almost like a PhD review. 
Um, mm. But in addition, they will ask, it's like, uh, you know, well, why do you need both degrees? Uh, because we could just take you into our PhD program. Yeah. <laughs> why do you need to go through this uh, dual pathway? And then on the MD side, you know, if you check the box for uh, being willing to consider as an MD, they'll put you through the regular MD process. And if you come out of this with acceptances by both committees, oh, well, then you're an accepted MD PhD. It does happen sometimes. You know, I had to negotiate this as chair where the MD PhD committee would pick somebody that the MD committee really didn't want. Oh, wow. Yeah, they said, you know, it's so the MD side was like, it's not clear that this person really wants to be a clinician. Mm-hmm. And so there had to be some negotiating about that <laughs> and what you end up offering to the student. Um, so it does happen both ways, you know, so it's one or the other committee will accept. Uh, ideally, both committees accept. Did it ever happen that a student was steered to just straight PhD? Yeah, so that gets a little complicated. So if a student applies to multiple PhD programs at a campus, those programs will talk to each other. Sure. And uh, they'll do kind of, they'll all do a pre-review and they'll decide where that student would, you know, have the best fit. So they'll say, oh, well, this student should be in biochemistry. So then the rest of the process continues for that application going through the biochemistry department only. It's not like that can happen with the MD-PhD. So they'll have to reject a client and tell the client, you know, we'd love to have you as a PhD student. Then they have to reapply the next cycle? Right, and have to reapply the next cycle. Got it. it. Okay. Uh, Um, And, you know, maybe they got accepted somewhere else, so. Yeah. So I guess just on a really high level, the in regular MD admissions, the app, the committee is looking to see, is this person going to be a good clinician? Is it, are they going to be a good fit in our community? Mm-hmm. And the MD PhD committee, they're still looking for all that, but they're also looking for this, this research science element. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be obviously fairly, fairly significant because Otherwise, they could still do, they could be an MD and still be a, a scientist and a researcher, et cetera. So right. there has to be a, a more significant commitment. How, right. do, how do you recommend applicants kind of avoid the twin traps, which we've danced around, I think, a little bit in our conversation of having a, an application reader question why they need both degrees? Why not just do the MD or just do the PhD? I mean, it seems like it's almost a little bit of a dance that they're having to do. They do. Um, you know, it's funny because we have, uh, you know, the students go through this whole process and, you know, articulate uh, themselves. And in the end, from the admission standpoint, you can just read it. And in one pass, you can know this person is an MD, PhD, right? You, you really? can just feel it, right? Okay. You, you feel the passion on both sides, hmm. right? So it's not like there's any trick or any code word that they're using. It's, it's just the big picture. You know, you just see it. This, this person has to do this. You know, they're just so driven. And, and you pick those up from the letters of reference as well. You know, it's like, oh, this person, you know, frequently, you know, if, if I happen to come in at 10 o'clock at night, there they were in the lab, you know. Uh, that, that's what you want to read on the committee side. Um, 
And obviously in terms of the clinical clinical side, you want to still see the, the kind of drive and commitment that you would see right. for, for any MD. Right. Right. And, you know, what's always great on the clinical side is that sort of one-on-one caring for people. And right. if you have a witness uh, who can attest to that in a letter, uh, that goes really far. Now, what if you have somebody, a client, okay, mm-hmm. who let's say had some rough spots academically, maybe in the first couple of years of college, they had a rough adjustment. They kind of got their act together mm-hmm. in their junior and senior year. And they, then they got into research and maybe they, they took a gap year or two and they researched and they got really good clinical exposure, but you know, the GPA is what their GPA is. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any advice for that kind of person who really would like the MD PhD? They they have that passion. Yes, and uh, they can be successful uh, getting into MSTP programs. All right. Um, I think it comes uh, from the PhD side. About ten years ago, there was a study done on bio the successful biology PhDs. So this is included biochem, micro, you know, everything Bioengineering. That's biology. Um, and what they found was that the uh, metrics coming out of college were very bad predictors of uh, successful scientists. Really? Um, you know, they'd get people who, yeah, they were good with books and stuff. They were terrible in the lab. <laughs> they just, you know, they didn't like the day-to-day grind and, you um, uh, you know, or they weren't creative, you know, they, they liked all the book stuff. Who, who knows what, what the problem was, but what turned out to be the best predictor was the letter of reference from their undergraduate research PI. Whoa. And, you know, if that said, this person's great, they're a great problem solver, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're on two publications, you know, they're instrumental to this project and this is you know the contribution that they made. Uh, yeah, then they're going to be a great uh, PhD candidate. Um, and that works on the MD PhD side as well. So I'd say, you know, for strict PhD, you can take people who really were pretty bad undergraduates <laughs> and make them into successful scientists. Uh, you can't do that for MD PhD. They still have to be, they have to have their wits together so that they can uh, get through school, right? You know, the, it's just intense and you got to keep at it. You got to have all the, the, you know, school skills. Um, but you don't have to have as high a grade. Um, you know, you look on MSAR these days and what the medians are like 3.85 in most schools. It's like, really? <laughs> it's really high. Um, and I can't believe that uh, there aren't good doctors with GPAs a lot lower than that. So, well, but, but that's the averages by, first of all, I think that's the top schools. I don't think it's, if you go a little bit, I, down, I actually see that change. at a lot of state schools. Really? But, I mean, it's just, it's it really is a little bit nuts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, but with MD PhDs, uh, I see the, uh, yeah, the GPAs uh, a bit lower and, you know, in part, they were in the lab all the time. So, you know, they weren't so focused on, oh, I've got to get all A's and stuff. Uh, they were like, you know, I got to learn this material, but I got to get back to the lab because my experiments <laughs> need, need something done on it. Um, and so I think that there is a, a certain 
I don't want to use the word tolerance, but uh, you know, a knowledge that uh, the GPA is not as essential uh, on the research side. And so then what can happen is the MD committee may say, well, yeah, you know, they've got all the credentials, they're, you know, a good researcher, they're, they're good with patients, but their GPA is a little on the low side, right? So then what happens is the two committees get together and they negotiate, and usually the MD-PhD wins in a case like that. Really? Right. Yeah. Is there, well, before I get to, well, I'll ask two questions again, which probably is, is uh, <laughs> makes it harder for you. But anyways, um, what role does the MCAT play in MD-PhD admissions? And is there a minimum GPA or MCAT? And I'm talking not a stated mm, minimum. I'm talking a realistic minimum that, you know, you got to do something else first to fix if um, you don't have it when you want to apply. Right. So MD, PhD is really hard yeah. uh, to get into. So, uh, so there are, you know, so it's very competitive and there aren't that many slots. So if some, you know, if it's you and some other candidate who has better metrics, probably the person with the better metrics is going to get the acceptance. Um, but that said, uh, I think the metrics can go a bit lower uh, for MD-PhD, and it might be 3.6 GPA and 5.12 MCAT. Um, you know, th that's still, you know, pretty, pretty uh, reasonable. Yeah, pretty reasonable metrics. Uh, but given the competitiveness, I think you want to at least be at that level. And I've seen with uh, MD, PhD, just like with MDs, that the MCAT is all important. Okay. And the higher your MCAT, the better your chances are. And I think it's, you know, so what does my seventh year it accepted? And <laughs> this is the thing I've really learned uh, working with clients, applying to med school is, yeah, that MCAT is the single biggest factor, I'm sorry to say. And the AAMC has been lobbying against it, even though it's their tool. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, you know, 512 and up. Okay. I'm, All right. I'm sorry. Well, that's you. just the reality. <laughs> that's the reality. Well, I, I appreciate the yeah. uh, dose of reality here. Mm -hmm. um, what about MD-PhD applicants who didn't make it and are thinking of a reapplication? Mm, what okay. should they do if at first they didn't succeed? Should they try, try again or try uh, something yes. else? Yeah. So uh, MD-PhD, just like MD, um, not making it one year does not damn you for a reapplication. Uh, but just like MD, you want to uh, figure out what was weak in your previous application and address it in your preparation for the following year. Um, so it could be, uh, and I think it's often the case where, yeah, your clinical experiences just aren't strong enough. Um, you know, sometimes uh, people just sort of go through the motion, you know, they're doing their uh, candy striping in the hospitals and, uh, you know, there's lots of hours, but not a whole lot of real caring for patients. And, and that's what you need. And, and actually what it comes down to it, it's caring for people as opposed to caring for patients, right? So you can be involved in 
uh, community activities where, uh, you know, you're helping people overcome things. Like maybe it's, uh, you're helping people get to their doctor's appointments, right? You know, you're finding people who are in need and you're providing a service. There are all kinds of ways that you can make a direct impact on an individual that helps improve their lives. And that's what they're looking for. Um, so, you know, it's, it's identify what it is that's weak. Um, I'd say if the weakness was in research, uh, you're probably in trouble. Can you go out and get and get a, a research position? Yeah, you can. <laughs> it's going to take a few years uh, uh, to go through that. So I'd say, you know, the, the research passion seems to go back further than the clinical passion, in part okay. because you can do research at a younger age. Uh, uh, I have a client right now who was very young when she went through college and she couldn't do uh, clinical jobs because she was too young. <laughs> um, and then once she uh, got to the right age, then she could, but that also you know, put her at a disadvantage uh, in her first cycle of applying. So. Right. Right. Um, so, but the, the, I think you're saying that uh, a, a rejection doesn't necessarily mean Forever rejected. Correct. If, if you right. address the weaknesses in the application. Right. And sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, uh, it's, you know, you haven't presented yourself effectively. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, I, I think, you know, one of our jobs as uh, consultants is okay. to really help people figure out how you present yourself. It's like, and uh, I'll do things like, uh, okay, we need a mission statement. You know, I need one <laughs> sentence about, well, you know, what, why you need to do what you're trying to do. So, and right. we can spend a week on that, you know, but you really have to achieve that focus. And then once you've got it, like everything else kind of falls into place. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I've just seen that enough times that, uh, Yes, you know, so sometimes that's all you need, right? Keep doing the good things that you're doing. Keep doing the clinical aspects. Keep doing the research. But let's get this application straightened out so that, you know, people really understand who you are and why they need to take you. So. Sounds good. You're kind of leading. You're, you're, this is like a, a perfect lead into my <laughs> next question. You're, you're great guest. <laughs> what are some of the common mistakes that uh, that you've seen applicants make in MD PhD applications, or that you correct? I'd say one of them is not having uh, the best clinical experiences. Uh, you know, they may have some, but they're not that sort of one-on-one -on -one type, and. Uh, I've had you know clients who start now or even earlier, where uh, I can help them recognize that, and it's like, okay, you need to get this done by May. <laughs> you know, you need to have six months now where you are pursuing this sort of one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one experience with somebody. It could be okay. You you're doing too many research projects. You need to focus so you you get that. Uh, that publication out of it. So it's just trying to get that priority uh, straight and, and fix those things as well as uh, getting that mission statement. 
And I find sometimes, you know, the mission statement helps to make it clear that, oh, <laughs> this is what I need to do, right? And then you're off and running. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, kind of developing your personal statement, your MD, PhD, essay, and those go through multiple iterations as you're getting these new experiences. So. Right. No, I think these are excellent points. Yeah. Thank you. Um, is there anything you would have liked me to ask you in connection with the MD, PhD application? I guess, what do I typically do with a client? Um, Go for sorry. it. <laughs> what do you, uh, how do you typically help an MD, PhD applicant? MD, PhD. I mean, I, I can think of one off the top of my head. I think he had nine acceptances or something. This was last year. Right. Um, you know, just yesterday, I was corresponding. I don't even think I forwarded this to you with an applicant who just got into his first choice school. This was an MD, PhD. This was just MD. First choice, allopathic med school. Absolutely thrilled. He was a reapplicant. He'd had already three acceptances, multiple interview invitations. And the previous year, he had nothing. He had no, I don't even think he had an interview invitation. So how would you help an MD, PhD applicant? So there's applicant versus reapplicant. <laughs> so uh, the applicant, um, so uh, I'm a scientist and uh, you can throw a lot of science at me and I can appreciate it. Right? So I like to learn the science that my clients have been involved in. Uh, and, uh, and then we talk about, yeah, the, the underlying motivations for this science. You know, how do you turn this into, you know, like a five minute data blitz or something? Uh, how do you turn this into an elevator conversation? You know, so the different levels of how you present what you're doing and what you're interested in. Uh, to tell your friends, colleagues, you know, whoever, and uh, maybe your mother or grandmother, right? That too, right? So, how do, how do you convey this to to a non scientist, right? Uh, how do you justify it to them? Um, so, uh, so I try to work with uh, what they have to offer uh, and understand that, and then help them to yeah make that into a compelling story, and then. Uh, and I typically with MD PhDs, I start on the, the PhD side and then do a similar sort of approach on the MD side where, you know, okay, tell me why you need both degrees. <laughs> and it's got to start there as opposed to why do you need the MD? It's like, <laughs> no, why do you need both degrees? Okay, let's work on this. And then that gets back to why you need the MD. Um, and uh, you know, where does this part of the story come from and how do the two parts come together? And, you know, so it, it, it evolves over time, but I really enjoy uh, getting to know uh, the science that my clients do. So. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that insight. Uh, Flash, I think we're just about out of time. I want to thank you again for sharing your in-depth knowledge and experience with our listeners and we'll link to resources related to this podcast from accepted.com slash 453. Those resources will include Dr. Herman Gordon's contact page, his previous podcast on Mission Straight Talk and other relevant resources. If you'd like to work with Dr. Gordon on your MD, PhD, your MD, or your PhD applications, please contact us as soon as possible because he does book up as deadlines approach. And as you can tell from this podcast, he's obviously very, very knowledgeable about the process and has helped many, many applicants get accepted. Listener, thank you too for joining Dr. Herman Gordon and me for Mission Straight Talk's 453rd episode. 
Again, you can get the show notes at accept.com slash 453. Final reminder and a favor. The reminder, don't miss Start Medical School in 2023, How to Get Accepted This Year, which I will present on January 18th. Save your spot today at accept.com slash startmedschool. And the favor, if you find the show worthwhile, please tell a friend about Admission Straight Talk. They'll thank you, and so do I. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 